We've been in the book of Philippians for, for quite a while, and we will finish chapter 2 today. We finish Philippians chapter 2. Greetings to you, uh, those of you that are watching online with us um, as well. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I'll be reading the um, ESV, but I'll get there in a while. Um, not in a long while, but I'll get there in a little bit. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark showed us uh, three movie clips um, from three movies that, that he shared with us that has shaped his imagination, um, that has spoken to, to who he is and uh, the things that he values. Um, and I want to kind of follow in that vein. I'm not going to show any movie clips, but I want to bring up on the screen uh, three movie characters um, that are my absolute favorite. I, I love these movie characters. And uh, the first one is Mufasa. And I intentionally wanted to get a picture of him playing uh, with Simba. Um, and as we look at that image, we can, we can bring the, the lights back up, um, but as we look at that, that image, it's, what I love about Mufasa is the way that the, just the posture of his life is, is all towards his son Simba. He, he teaches him, he disciplines with love, he, he even invites Simba in into the own fear and anxiousness that he has in his own life, right? When, when his son's threatened that there's something that is provoked within him, that he, he, he protects him and he plays with him. I, I just have always loved Mufasa. The second image um, is Bishop Mariel uh, from, from Les Mis. Extremely small part in, in, in the, the novel, the, the movie, but his acts of generosity and grace completely redirects Jean Valjean's life. Just that this, the, the way that he treats Jean Valjean as, as Jean Valjean goes to, to steal stuff so that he has the, um, those silver candlesticks. And I love what's, what's said in, uh, I believe it's the 1998 um, version. And Bishop Mariel tur turns to Jean Valjean and says, My brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Is this moment of radical forgiveness as Jean Valjean is, is steering, stealing from, uh, from the church and Bishop Mariel, and, and again, he acts with such grace. The other gentleman on the screen is Benny the Jet Rodriguez. Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez from the movie The Sandlot. He was cool. I, I, I'm rocking uh, intentionally my black converse today in, in honor of Benny the Jet Rodriguez and his PF flyers that allows him to outrace the beast uh, from next door of The Sandlot. But he was, he was talented. How many other people in history have knocked the guts out of a baseball? He was, he was generous. He, he, for some reason, was just have, had a hat in his back pocket all day long, and he takes it out, and he gives it to Smalls, and he, he gives him his old glove, and he, and he invites him into the team. And I've got to be honest, I mean, growing up, it was one of the 
few people that I could see myself in a, in a positive light. He was, he, was, he was Latin American, and he wasn't a caricature, and he wasn't a gangster. <laughs> that was so cool to see him on the screen. But there's this, this moment in the beginning of the movie when Smalls uh, is, is observing the sandlot. He's watching all of these young guys playing baseball, and he's, and he's He's just wowed by the game of baseball. He's watching the way that they turn a double play, and he's just, he's just floored by what's happening there. And, 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 and Smalls is a, is a square. He's kind of nerdy. He, he doesn't have the, the talent that everyone else on the field has. But Benny the Jet advocates for him. And, and he tell, this is what he tells Smalls. Because Smalls, he can't catch, he can't throw, and he, he teaches him how to throw, and then he tells him this. While everyone else on the field is doubting Smalls, Benny the Jet says, listen, just put your glove in the air, and I'll take care of the rest. And there's this moment on screen as, as he's sitting there, and he kind of just takes a deep breath, and Benny the Jet, he hits the ball, and it flies the length of the field. I mean, just imagine this. A pitcher has a hard time hitting right smack in the middle of the glove of the catcher, and Benny the Jet's able to hit a ball all the way across the field, and it lands perfectly. If you remember Smalls sitting there with his eyes closed saying, please catch it, please catch it, please catch it. The ball hits his, his mitt, and the demeanor of the entire field changes. Everyone else in the field says, all right, let's play. And Squint says, I knew it. I knew it all along. <laughs> Benny the Jet, he, he embodies intentionally. He, he's designed as a character to embody the spirit of baseball. And what it means to, to properly play and revere the game. He becomes the shining example from Small's perspective of how you are supposed to view baseball, but also how you're supposed to view friendship, how you're supposed to view teamwork, how you're supposed to view leadership. He becomes this, this example to everybody else. And then he, Benny the Jet uses his posture of, of esteem that he has in everyone else's eyes, and he makes a way for Smalls. As we look at as we look at the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to the Philippian church, and he's saying, I have two examples for you. And kind of like Benny the Jet, he props up Timothy and Epaphroditus to say, I'm commending them to you. I, I really do want these two guys to be a part of the team. So let's read Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. It says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like you who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you have heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul is sending these two men to the Philippian church. He will first send Epaphroditus to the church. It's likely that Epaphroditus will be the one that's carrying this letter from Paul to the Philippian church with him. He's likely to be the one that's going to read the letter out loud to the community, and he's likely going to be the one that's going to be around for a handful of weeks, months. I mean, we don't know the, the length of that stay, and he will be the one that will help to translate what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. When Paul writes this, this is what he's meaning. When Paul says this, I really believe that this is what he's trying to bring home to you. But he's not just a deliverer of the message, he is an example of the message. Paul is intentionally bringing Epaphroditus before the church and saying, look, the things that I'm writing about, especially as we've read uh, over the past few weeks, that first part of Philippians chapter 2, he's saying these things that I've written about, here is a shining example. Because how many of us know we need examples in our lives? It is good, it is right, like we've just saying, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. But we also find in this journey of faith that we need to also be able to look around us and find examples of what it looks like to live this faith out. And when Paul commends Epaphroditus and Timothy to the Philippian church, there are certain characteristics that he highlights about them. What is it that they are embodying? How is it that they are becoming examples to the Philippian church? And so I'm just going to walk through some of the characteristics that I see in these two men that Paul highlights for them. The first one is simply this. They were concerned. They cared. Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else that will match Timothy's concern for you. When he writes about Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus nearly dies, and what's his concern? The church. He's concerned that they're going to be discouraged. He's what's on seemingly his deathbed, and what's on his heart is, oh no, this will likely impact the church. Paul's recommendation of these two men to the church wasn't first and foremost on their charisma. It wasn't that they had 15 doctorates in leadership and theology. It wasn't because they were incredibly talented worship leaders. For Paul, it was that they cared. 
means that they were concerned. And no one was going to match the amount of concern that they had for this church community. And so that's why they recommended it. When Loris and I were, were dating, um, we, were, we were doing the, the long distance thing. She was actually interning here at Faith, and I was uh, a junior high pastor at a church in L.A. County. And um, so we were quite a ways apart. And um, I had this persistent, what I just thought was an ingrown hair that was on my leg. And it was just like this little pimple that was there. And um, one day in the shower, I, I popped it. And I'm not going to go into the, the much detail. <laughs> I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But all I'm going to say is that the problem wasn't going away. And I realized this isn't, this isn't a pimple or ingrown hair. And I called my brother, who, who at the time was a, uh, um, an EMT and studying to be a firefighter. And I was like, hey, this is what's going on with my leg. And, and he responded. He said, yeah, you should probably go to the doctor. And when he said that, I was like, oh, this is serious. <laughs> like, because if he was concerned, then that means it was like next level. And I was like, OK, well, I guess I will. And I went to the doctor, and they, they took a Q-tip and like, like the, head, the whole head of the Q-tip went into my leg. I'm sorry that I said I wasn't going to go into much detail, but I did. Um, it was a spider bite that completely like ate away part of my leg. And I actually still have a little bit of a dip in my leg. Like if I stand like this, you can actually like put the tip of your finger through like into my leg. Um, just reminds me of Jesus and his scars. Uh, but here's, here's why I say all that. Again, Larissa was 100 miles away, and I called her, and I was like, hey, you know, how's it going? Is it good? Where are you at? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm at the ER. And she's like, what? I, like, yeah, I'm, I'm at the doctor's, and I, it's no big deal. And, and here's why I share all of this. There was a level of concern and care that I could hear in her voice for me that just completely shaped from that point on how I viewed the relationship. It, it, it was this place of just realizing, like, wait a minute, the posture that she's taking in this relationship is that it's all about me. Like, it isn't, it isn't on my looks, <laughs> right? No, it, it isn't, like, like, everything about that, that phone call was just, like, she was willing to drop everything and go drive to the ER to be with me. And then that, it was kind of in that moment, right? Like, you just go, oh, this is a serious relationship, right? Like, this is like, but that's, that's this place of saying that, that, that what, what's demonstrated in Paul, with, with Timothy and Epaphroditus, it's this place of saying they would be willing to drop everything for you. Like the posture that they're taking in this relationship is that their hearts are directed towards you. They care about you like no one else will care about you. And that's why you should embrace them to be the examples and the leaders in your community. When we were 
the, the youth pastors here at the church, we, we had this practice uh, towards the end of the, the school year to take youth, to take the high school seniors on church visits because we knew quite a few that seniors were going to be leaving San Diego and going to colleges and universities all around the country. And so we wanted them to learn the practice of, of looking for a new community. If I were to do that again, because afterwards we would go out to lunch and we would ask them, like, what stood out to you about the community? What are you looking for? What did you like? What did you not like? Like, what, what, what struck your heart? If I were to do that again, the, the first question that I would ask and the thing that I would point the, the, the seniors to is this. Did you notice that that church community had a care for people other than themselves? That's what I would want them to recognize. That's what I would want them to do for in a community. And that's really it, isn't it? Is that what Paul recognizes about these two men is that they were concerned for others. And so earlier, when, when he writes to the church, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. It's no wonder that he follows up that section by saying, and then here's Timothy and Epaphroditus, who have, who, whose concern and care for you is matchless. They're actually living that out. And so as a church community, right, like the, the, the point of reflection for us is to stop and to evaluate, like, do we have a growing concern for others? Has our life in Jesus caused us to be more aware of other people? Do we make decisions and use our power and influence for others' sake? Does our being around Jesus cause us to celebrate other people more. That was the first thing that Paul looked at when he looked at Timothy and Epaphroditus. That their hearts were expanding for the sake of other people. The next thing that he highlights is, is Timothy's character. And the thing that he says is, is, is that, you know, you know Timothy's proven worth. Paul describes Timothy as someone of proven worth, of character. But for Paul, there was a way to measure this character. There was a way for him to look at Timothy and to evaluate, like, this is why he has proven worth. And what he does is he ties it to the gospel. That, that Timothy's character, Timothy's being of proven worth, was based on how Timothy's whole life was congruent with the gospel. Right? We, we aspire to be people of character. We people that, that are honest, that are people that are filled with integrity, who are respectable. But it's this understanding that says that this is our plumb line. It's the gospel. It is the character and nature of Jesus. It is the, the pronouncement of his kingdom, the characteristics of the kingdom of God. And we say that we desire for our lives to constantly be in conformity with who Jesus is. That the message on our lips and that the method of our living 
would constantly be more and more in alignment. So when Paul recognizes Timothy and he says, he's of proven worth, how do I know he's of proven worth? Because his life is constantly looking like the cross. That's what it means to have character. That our life would look more and more like Jesus. Earlier in chapter 1, when Paul writes to the church, this is what he says. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Paul's passion is that we would have lives that would constantly align with the gospel. And when he highlights Timothy, essentially what he's doing here is saying, yeah, Timothy is living out that above all thing. Above all, he's living as a citizen of heaven, living in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. One of the commentators that I came across this past week and looking over this passage says this, it says, every reference that Paul makes to individuals in this letter is made in connection with that person's partnership with the gospel. And either his or her help or hindrance of koinonia, partnership, and common life. Every reference. Every person that Paul highlights in this letter, his, his, his evaluation point is this. Is their life in alignment with the gospel or is it not? That's the point of evaluation for him. And so then for our lives, right, that that would become the posture of our living, that everything about our lives is saying, how is it being more and more lived out to look like the cross? That's what it means to have a growing character. I brought him up briefly, but Bishop Mariel. Why, I was just so drawn to his character. And the reason I was so drawn is because here he is living in a church parsonage. He's, he, he, and and, and when, when someone comes to steal from him, he acts with grace and generosity and forgiveness. He acts in a way that, that, that just sets John, John Valjean up for the rest of his life. And he breaks Valjean's callous, beat up, broken heart through that act of generosity. And what becomes so attractive about Bishop Mariel is that we look at that character and saying, there it is. There's an example of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Right? And we, we rejoice at a character like that because we can look at him and say, he's, he's actually doing it. He's actually living this thing out. And that the actions of his life are matching up with the message on his lips. The message of our lips matches the method of our living. And the next thing that Paul points out is, is that, that our lives become sacrificial. Paul uses three words to describe Epaphroditus. The three words that he uses, or titles that he uses to describe him are brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Paul uses the first two in quite a bit of ways throughout his letters, but that, that fellow soldier becomes a bit unique. He doesn't use it very often. 
But what we recognize is that, like we've talked about for a handful of weeks, is that Paul is writing to a, a colony of Rome. Philippi is an outpost uh, of Rome, and so they understand what it means to be soldiers. They would, they, they would understand what it means to have a commitment to, to Rome. They would understand what it li- meant to live with sacrifice on behalf of Rome. You stop and you think about the launch of the Philippian church in the book of Acts and that Philippian jailer when he thinks that all of the prisoners have escaped the jail. What does he do? He pulls out his sword and he's ready to kill himself because he thinks the prisoners have left. That gives you an insight into who Philippians are. They understand sacrifice. They understand commitment. And so what Paul does is he uses this term as a way to leverage their understanding and saying, this is what it looks like and this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. That our commitment and our allegiance to the kingdom of God and Jesus and his people, we're willing to give up everything on behalf of him. See, Timothy was, was, was commended to the Philippians for his living for Jesus, and Epaphroditus was commended to the Philippians for his nearly dying for them. See, the story of, of, of Epaphroditus is that it was very likely the case that the Philippian church, you know, knowing that Paul was in prison in Rome, was going to give a bunch of money to Epaphroditus and a crew of people, and that they were going to carry that, and they were going to journey a long distance to bring that money to help support Paul while he's in prison. And along the way, Epaphroditus nearly died. This illness is severe. And so Paul writes to them and and commends Epaphroditus as this example of what it looks like to be so committed to the kingdom of God and to God's people that he nearly gave all that he had for them. And he holds that up as an example for the community. It's no wonder there's immense gratitude in Paul's heart for this community. The Philippian church gathers a whole bunch of money, not out of their plenty, but out of their lack. They send a beloved brother and Epaphroditus to carry this money to Paul, and along the way, he nearly dies. Can you imagine what that money felt like in Paul's hands? Can you imagine what it was like to hold on to that gift? Again, it's no wonder he was filled with such affection and joy for this community. Because he knew that this community gave everything that they have, and and one man nearly gave his entire life so that he can hold on to that gift of provision from the church community. It's this beautiful illustration of just what it means to be so committed to the gospel, so committed to to this relationship with Jesus that we will live sacrificially. And in all of this, in all of this, we learn a lesson on joy. Paul writes about how his heart is going to be cheered. Just about hearing the Philippians are doing. And and he talks about that when Epaphroditus is coming back to them, that that they would be filled with joy. 
And as Paul writes this, this section, and as he does so highlighting people that are giving all that they have, it's also this section is bathed, soaked in a reflection on joy. Because that sacrificial living and that, that posture of living that is so focused on others, it's not a coincidence that there's also these reflections on joy woven between that. That a life poured out on behalf of others will be a life that experiences a deep and profound joy. My college pastor, Matt Unrath, I was thinking about him this week as I was thinking about this message. Matt, Matt is, I don't, I'm not using hyperbole. He is the most humble man that I know. You, he, he's, he's six foot like seven. And, and the reason I say that is just because like, like when you tell a story to Matt, like this giant frame, all that he is, is just entirely like attuned to you. I would tell him a story about what I had for lunch. And without exaggeration, there would be this massive smile on his face and say, Vince, that's so cool. It wasn't sarcasm. Like, it was genuine. And he would just go, dude, you're such a rock star. Like, everything that he had celebrated other people. Everything. Like, he, he was just... I've, I've never sat at a table with someone that was just like constantly just like ear to ear grin as he just listened to you share the most mundane thing about your life. And this man, who's, who, the posture of his life was always so tuned and turned towards others. Most humble man that I know Honestly, he's also one of the most joyful men that I know. That's not coincidence. That doesn't happen on accident. But why? Because his, his life isn't filled with comparison. He's not sitting there listening to you tell a story and just be like, I can't wait to one-up this. Or thinking about himself and how he's going to turn that conversation towards himself. But because everything about his life is sitting there and celebrating others, what happens then over the course of his life? There are just constant points of celebration. There's constant points of joy. There's constant things to celebrate. There's constant things to be happy about. Because he could sit here and listen to someone and just be so tied into how they're doing and what they're going through. And with that lack of, 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 like, of comparison that we so often fall into, where he could just step into and, and just be able to celebrate others, there is a life of joy behind that. Our, our culture is built on this idea that we have the ability to pursue happiness. pursue joy. But if we think that we're going to get there through fierce independence and disconnection from others, 
we will never find the joy that we're longing for. We won't get there. And so Paul, through these examples, really does give us a roadmap. It's a life focused on others. It's a life poured out on behalf of other people. It's a life that is filled to the brim with concern for others. As we go to the Lord's table here in a moment, what I just immediately think about is is that passage in, in, in the book of Hebrews. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That joy set before him is you. Right here, right now, in this moment. It's you. So Jesus goes to the cross and he does so. What sparks joy in him is that he's he's doing this on behalf of others. That he's doing this for our sake. That his life literally is poured out on our behalf. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. As we go to communion, there's, it's going to be a little bit different um, this morning because we're still in kind of, again, in that in-between. You know, trying to, we've been praying and trying to discern and figure out how do we do this together because we know that for quite a bit in the community, um, to, to rip the bread and dip it in a common cup might be a, a step too far for some people right now, and that's okay. We, we hope to get there. Um, but here's what we have lamented about the idea of communion over the past few months is that it's done by ourselves. So we've been trying to figure out because communion is meant, again, this, this, this posture of living that we have is always so turned towards one another. And so as we, as we think about the cross, Jesus being broken and his blood poured out on our behalf, it is something that we're supposed to share together. So our attempt at that this morning is this, is that it's going to just be an open invite for you to, to go to one of the tables in the back and invite someone to come with you. Invite a, a collection of people to come with you if you would like. Let us, especially around communion, have a spirit of grace and, 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 a, a grace and love towards one another. So if someone says, like, no, I'm not ready to be in a big group, like, it wouldn't make sense to be around communion and say, like, how dare you not be ready, Right? But that, that we would just invite maybe a couple of people to come to the table with us, grab some of the communion elements, find a space in the worship center. And then we just put these simple words that someone in the group would lead this out. And you would just simply say this. You would open up the, the bread portion. You'd say the body of Christ broken for you and everyone could partake. And then the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you could partake of that. So we will, we will in that sense, serve communion together. Uh, with one another. We'll receive communion uh, together. Um, And as we do so, may it be a reminder that the cross causes us and calls us to be drawn together. That as we do this, that as we remember Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf, that that we'll constantly be this place of reflection where it's also saying, man, that our concern and our affection starts growing beyond us and starts getting turned towards other people, the people around us.
Um, before you go, let me also just say this by point of detail. This one table back here has uh, gluten-free. Um, we don't have very many. So if you don't need the gluten-free option, don't go to that table. Um, but if you do or someone in your group needs that gluten-free option, then you'll see it even labeled uh, in one of those baskets. Jesus, as we turn to the table, we just see your example of living. And that your example of living was dying. That what you have taught us and are constantly show, showing us is to have this expanding concern and awareness for the people around us. So as, as we partake of the bread and the juice this morning, we do so with a reflection on our heart that says, Lord, give us your heart. Continue to shape us so that we might look more and more like you. Pray that in Jesus' name.